0: Our gospel reading for today comes from the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 3, beginning with the first verse. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I I baptize you with water for repentance, but one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit in fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Here ends our reading. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, as the world outside the church is in full Christmas swing, as we hear music uh, on the radio station, as we are busy about buying gifts and putting up our decorations, here in church, we focus on the season of Advent, not Christmas. And as I mentioned last week, Advent is a, is a season of preparation. It's a season when we prepare for the adventus, for the arrival of God. Not only the arrival of God in a little child in Bethlehem, but also for the arrival of God in our lives, the transformative power of God in our lives. Now, last week I said that the first step on this Advent journey of preparing the way is one of Waiting of asking ourselves, do we actually want this transformative power of God? Are we ready for it? Have we considered what this might mean and where we might find it? And I argue that this has consequences for us. It has consequences for our lives. And we have to be ready for it, to look for it, to wait for it, to be proactive. That was last week. And now this week, we turn to the question of, well, what exactly does that look like? Okay, great. We're in a period of waiting. Well, how are we supposed to wait? What are we supposed to do? And that's where our text for today becomes particularly helpful. It's a text you know well. It's the Matthew version of John the Baptist. You can close your eyes. I'm sure you can see the scene. Here this is the the wilderness area around the River Jordan. With rocks and dry uh, dry land around there. Not much grows in that area. And there was John the Baptist dressed as a Latter-day Elijah crying out for people to come to the Jordan and repent. And according to the text, people came from all over. Day after day, scores of them from all over the countryside came to be baptized. Now, as I have preached before, and as I'm sure you've heard about in other contexts, this word repentance isn't quite what we think of when we think of repentance in the English language. Repentance here in this text uh, it's actually the Greek word metanoia, which means quite literally a change of heart, a change of mind. It's rooted in the, Greek, in the Hebrew word shuv, meaning to turn. It's about a turning around, a turning back towards God. That's really what the call is here of John the Baptist in the wilderness. Turn back to God, return to God, change your mind. And for the longest time, I've thought that this is probably takes the form of things like Uh, If you want to turn to God, that means come to church. Always a good thing to take note of, (laughs) come to church. Uh, Turning to God means trying to be kind to your neighbor, or serving others, or perhaps advocating for justice. Any number of these things that we can do, or maybe lifting our voices up in prayer and praise and singing, turn to God. But, uh, you know, recently I've been on, as I said last week, on my own spiritual journey and reading some new texts and trying to think more deeply about things, and I begin to take a slightly different take on this classic sense of the word metanoia, repentance, turning. Now, last week I mentioned three different theological perspectives. And I bring them up because they're three things that are very much on my heart right now and things I'm currently wrestling with. And one of the nice things about being a preacher is you get to preach to yourself and everyone else gets to hear the <laughs> results of that. <clears throat> so whether you like it or not, here's, here are the things that, goes on, that go on in the mind of John Page. Um, so one of the writers that I'm uh, wrestling with right now is this Jesuit uh, spiritual writer, Anthony DeMello. This man who uh, was very famous towards the end of his life for giving spiritual retreats. And as I mentioned last week, the book that I'm currently reading is a book that's a transcription of his retreats, uh, of one of his retreats. Because he died suddenly of a heart attack at 57, tragically, and one of his students actually took recordings of his spiritual direction, his spiritual retreats, and transcribed it, and then published it later in this book that I'm reading, Awareness. And... The way that DeMello talks about this turn to God is actually not an external turn to God. That If we want to turn to God, we actually need to focus on turning inward. That that's actually the main focus on metanoia. It's an internal change, not an external change of action. And DeMello picks out three different things that are key for him in this internal change. The first is asking yourself, honestly, asking yourself, what are those things that disturb you now in your life? What are those things that are causing you difficulties in your life that make your life less than ideal? What are they? Is it perhaps some sort of sense of loss in your life? A loss of a loved one or a friend, a loss of a job? a loss of a house, a loss of a past that won't come back? Is that something that's disturbing you? Is it perhaps feeling judged by others for one thing or another? Not being good enough at work, not being good enough in your family, some other aspect of judgment. Is it that ubiquitous thing in our society today, stress? Is there some sort of stress that bears you down? And DeMello asks, what is the source of these things? Try and name what exactly it is that's causing you problems and name what the source is. That's his first step. The second thing he says is you then have to respect reality for what it is and for being something that you can't change. So he says reality is reality. Reality functions. In reality, it turns out people grow old. That happens. There's nothing you can do about that. Reality is people die. Reality is relationships get fractured. Reality is bad things happen to good people. And that's reality. And you have to accept the fact that reality simply is reality. And it's morally neutral. And you can't do anything about it. And then the next step is, he says, is those things that are causing you difficulty in them, make sure that you don't identify with them. So he says, you might be feeling depressed, That doesn't mean that you yourself essentially are depressed. That means you are experiencing a feeling of depression. It happens to everyone, some more seriously than others. It comes and then it goes. It's something perhaps you can get treatment for, but it doesn't. It doesn't define who you are. You might be experiencing anxiety right now. Can you step back and say, "I"? I," Can you step back and have some uh, objectivity from that and not identify with that and say, "Okay, I'm experiencing anxiety," and now I can identify that and I can say this is not a part of who I am. This is not. What defines me? I'm experiencing grief. I'm experiencing these other things. These things are not about defining you. He, he lifts up the value of detachment. Again, this is someone who grew up in India. It was very heavily influenced by Eastern traditions. Now he'd be the first to say, detachment doesn't mean non-action in the world. He quotes from the Bhagavad Gita, the great Hindu text. It uh, says, jump into the heat of battle, but keep your heart at the lotus feet of the Lord. What he's asking for is if you're going to be a Christian in society, the first thing you have to do is find some sense of peace and being in the center of you. You have to connect to God in your center first. That actually is step number one and far more important than anything else. If you don't actually deal with the internal stuff first, if you don't turn inward first, you end up causing more problems actually and trying to fix things outside you. This, of course, is more easily said than done. And as... uh, God has a tendency to do, sometimes I get real life examples that come into my life even without asking. So the other day I was coming to church and um, as occasionally happens I was late uh, (laughs) laughter and as I was t- driving up Studemont on my way to I-10, of course, there's construction. And there's these construction cones. They're shutting off an entire lane, which they seem to do all the time. I should have known this and taken a different path, but I didn't. And as I was there, it says the right lane is closed, so I'm one of the good people in the left lane. And these people come up and start cutting me off on the right. Meanwhile, I'm late. Um, and so I find myself getting a little bit worked up. <laughs> and... It's only after I'm driving to church thinking about my sermon on Sunday. I'm like, okay, John, okay, you need to put these lessons into play here. Uh, The reality is there is traffic in Houston. I'm sorry. That just happens. Okay. (laughs) There are people who cut you off. That just happens too. I shouldn't be surprised by this or overly disturbed by it. Okay. And the fact that I'm late is actually on me. And so therefore I shouldn't let that bother me either. I should just either show up earlier or try and do some other adjustment in my schedule. But for me to be so worked up and to identify with that only caused me all this anger and pain and unhappiness. Uh, and I was thinking very unchristian thoughts about the person who cut me off. <laughs> but the reality is, how much work do I need to do internally about that? That person's going to be that person no matter what. And that person might have a whole bunch of other things going on. I can't control that. But you know what I can control? Me. So this is what DeMello says, is what it means to turn to God. This is what it looks like. Trying to identify those feelings, acknowledge reality as reality, and try not to identify yourself with those feelings. Interestingly, there's similar themes that come up in another person I mentioned last week, who's Paul Tillich. If you recall, I talked about Paul Tillich as being a Christian existentialist. That's his theological perspective. And what Tillich does as he says the key, the, the key thing for us in our lives is, is trying to acknowledge what are the threats to our being. Again, it's a question of being and non-being as an existentialist. What are the threats of non-being to my being? And he to like, outlines three different categories here. You have the threat of fate or finitude, the fact that your body is limited, uh, the fact that you're not uh, you know, Alex Bregman or Justin Verlander, even though you want to be a great baseball player, sorry, that's just not going to happen. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, there are certain threats, fate comes at you in various ways that threatens you, your finitude, your limitations, okay? That's one threat to non-being that Tillich lifts up. A second one is guilt. We feel guilty for not living up to others' expectations, and this can deeply harm us in various ways, and in its sort of extreme sense, you feel a total sense of condemnation. Uh, and similarly, the, the third threat of non-being he has is emptiness. We feel empty, um, oftentimes in life, and in its most extreme form, this is meaninglessness and despair, Right. And again, as Tillich says, all these things actually can affect our being in profound ways and even in their most extreme forms destroy our very being. And so how we exist in the world, how we get the courage to be, as he says, the courage to be ourselves is by the fact that there is a ground of being underneath us. That's his phrase for God. There is this ground of being that reaffirms our very being and allows us the courage to be in this world where there are these assaults on our very sense of self. right, this is what Tillich lays out. And what is the answer then? So you, you can acknowledge this system, what's the answer to trying to have the courage to be, to be yourself amidst these different assaults? How do you do it? You turn inward. In Tillich's phrase, you have to accept the fact that you are accepted. You have to accept the fact that you are accepted. Accept that you are a limited being and you're not going to be Justin Verlander. And that's fine. Uh, one of the things that comes up in, 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 my, own, in my own mind, and this comes up uh, in my own personal experience, but I'm sure others have experiences that can resonate. Again, when I was a, a younger man and still very much a closeted gay man, like one of the things I felt was incredible guilt. Guilt over the feelings that I had, and in its extreme form, condemnation, and even considering taking my own life at certain points because the sense of condemnation was so strong. A threat of non-being against being, a classic example of this. There are other examples you could lift up. But then there were certain points in my life where I felt the affirmation of God saying, you know what, John, you are okay as you are. Sometimes that came from uh, friends and family members who were able to say that you are okay. Sometimes it came from reading novels or books or movies that reaffirmed me, you know what, I'm, I'm okay. Or also the people I met in my life and my prayer life. And eventually through my life, I have realized that, you know what, I am okay as I am. And that turning inward, though, that's an inward process where you can be okay with your ground of being, accept that you are accepted, and then have the courage to be in the world. But what is this whole sense of turning, metanoia? What does it mean? It's turning inward and finding that courage to be. Third perspective I looked at last week was one of liberation theology. Again, another thing that's constantly on my mind. Liberation theology is this theological framework that says that we find God in the process of liberation from oppression. That's where we find God in those moments. When we we stand in solidarity with those on the margins, that's where we find God. And again, even though this is, at least on the face of it, a very externally focused theology, changing the world, ending oppression, the reality is that that first step, the conversion step, is a turning inward. It's a seeing the world in a different perspective. Again, liberation theology says so often people get caught in individual sins. Oh, I'm a bad person. Oh, I'm a bad person. I'm a bad person. You get caught in these cycles and you end up just living in the systems of oppression that exist because you think it's your fault. The first step for liberation theologians is saying, you know what? There are structures of sin that exist in this world that actually oppress people. And maybe those are the problems more so than you as an individual. And that initial that being able to see that first, saying, hey, maybe it's not my fault. You know, maybe various things I struggle with because I'm a woman. Maybe it's not my fault. Maybe it's the misogyny of society that's actually at fault. Um, One of the things that came up yesterday, yesterday I was watching... um, Football uh, with some friends, the SEC championship game, cheering on LSU as uh, so my friend was cheering on LSU. And <laughs> anyway, in the middle of halftime, there was this great moment in halftime uh, where there, there, there we were gathered, and I don't know if you saw it, but there was this Dr. Pepper challenge. You know, Dr. Pepper sponsors uh, a lot of college football. There's this Dr. Pepper challenge where two different students had to throw footballs through a, through a hole. Uh, and the more footballs you threw, like, one of them got $100,000 towards their tuition, you know, or, and one, the second-place person, got $25,000 towards their tuition. So we're watching this sort of halftime show as they're putting these footballs through the, through the hole, and one of my friends who was staying there, he's like, what a perfect example of late-stage capitalism. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you mean? And he's like, society creates completely unnecessary, backbreaking college debt, okay, and then creates... Sort of a corporation to come in and save you by giving you just a small portion of relief on your debt And then, oh, aren't they so great? And by the way, go buy Dr. Pepper Um, (laughs) But this is a perfect example of this liberation theology mold It's like there's certain things in our society where you think Oh, let's say I've got a whole bunch of college debt And my entire life is ruined because of this And I feel I'm under this crushing blow Maybe this isn't my fault Maybe actually society is messed up and shouldn't do this Maybe Just Maybe my friend got a little worked up, so I decided to <laughs> pass that energy along. That first step, though, having a different perspective on things. Now, the text here in Matthew 3 is an interesting one. It's not the same as it is in Mark. Matthew makes some changes. And the changes we see in Matthew come with the figures of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. When the Sadducees and Pharisees come in, John the Baptist calls them out and immediately starts judging them. The Sadducees and Pharisees are the perfect examples of those people who are focusing on external exhibits of piety. The Sadducees, this is the way the temple should function. This is the way that we're able to be religious. This is what we're supposed to do. The Pharisees, here are the 613 mitzvot that we must follow. You need to follow this in order to be a good person. You know, follow the letter of the law. Um, and here is John the Baptist saying, make sure that you bear fruit worthy of repentance, of a true turning. The problem with the Sadducees and the Pharisees is they weren't turning inward inward. They were focused on exterior things, turning inward. We are now in the second week of Advent, a time of season where we are preparing for the Adventists, for the approach of God into our lives. The first step is waiting, but the second step is turning. And the way we do that is by turning inward and asking deep questions. So let us all embrace that this week and look forward to next week, the third step, in our Advent journey.